to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Later in the show will be the second half of my talk with Megway Baker, noted game designer and historian. First, I'm going to talk about the book, So You Want to Talk About Race, by Ijoma Uluo. She is a, an essayist, a writer, a blogger, and she takes on really kind of a handheld the questions that everyone asks her that would take emotional labor for her to do it's a mix of personal essays and statistics and it is a terrific book james baldwin once said not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced mr rogers said if it can be mentioned it can be managed and this book says things like being privileged doesn't mean that you're always wrong and that people without privilege are always right. It means there's a good chance you're missing a few very important pieces of the puzzle, which I think is really the why of this book. She covers a super wide array of subjects, all of them based in both personal experience and well-documented stats. Plus, and I so appreciate this, practical ways for us to move forward together. A commenter on Goodreads wrote, all the things that Oluo warns about and asks of her readers are the same things that any professional psychologist would do when they want to heal someone who has been in a long-term abusive relationship, complete with many fractured bones and a severe distrust for anyone in authority because the authority failed them. And I love that review because that is exactly how I felt when I was reading this was that there are very many parallels with abuse situations because the mechanics are fundamentally the same. And I like this in her preface. She even takes the time to correct some things in the book that she feels could have been better described and has actually updated newer versions of the book. And does point out this, and I think this is very important. The fact that this book is used for workplace training purposes if this is you, if it's something you bring into work, if it's something you want to discuss around work or around school, it is very important not to consider your minority representative acquaintances, friends, coworkers as the token explainers. You don't bring this book into work and have every white face turn to the one person of color and say, make this make sense. This is huge, and I think her warning is well-founded. I have been in several workplaces that did that kind of thing. It's a huge ask. It is another form of abuse. I totally recommend this book. It's very engaging. It's a balance of very first-person essays. The author is a biracial Nigerian-American woman, so she can attest not just to the sort of structural and more general things, but the real pain and discussion about how race marks marginalized people from day one, but it also gives them community. White friends don't necessarily know how to be anti-racist or how to be okay with her hurt and rage, but then that's balanced by people who do align and reach out to her. She addresses the reader from time to time in this book, you are here because you know something is very wrong and you want to change, and it all starts with conversations. But what a landmine those conversations are, the fear of getting it wrong, the fear of 
being uncomfortable. And those of us in dominant positions, whether it's race, ability, gender, class, any of those things, we have a really unreasonably huge fear of being uncomfortable. That's a very interesting observation I hadn't truly sat with and considered until this book. Even people with almost unlimited power, politicians, media personalities, police, have this unreasonably large fear of just being uncomfortable. One thing that this book has made me recognize or maybe re-recognize, I, I have thought of this in the past, and that is that America has never had any kind of truth and reconciliation process around slavery. And we teach it poorly, but even in the poor way we teach it, I remember as a kid thinking that was it, things weren't great, and we've never had any kind of reckoning with that. This is especially true. I think I've thought about this not too long ago as it related to the Irish violence where people were saying, these were my neighbors, I know who did it. It's super important to do that kind of process while these people are still alive. Germany's way of teaching the Holocaust, for example, is exemplary. South Africa, which did develop the truth and reconciliation. You have to be able to talk about these really uncomfortable things, especially if you are in a place of power, whether you believe you are or not, whether other ways that you're not powerful make you feel like it negates that power. Anyway, we go on talk about class and race. She had to ask a friend, are black people poor for the same reasons as white people are poor? And no, they're not. They're different reasons. There's job discrimination around names. There's mortgage gouging. There's redlining. There's wage theft. That is not the reason that white people end up poor. And a lot of movements will say, well, wait your turn. We're just going to ser serve the majority. But their turn, the turn of the marginalized, never comes. Racism as a fleshed out philosophy began in the mid late 1700s to justify breeding of slaves. That was actually described brilliantly in the book I reviewed a couple weeks ago called The Fabric of Civilization, that making an entire philosophy around elevating white skin and diminishing dark skin, that is not a very old mechanism at all. It was invented to lock people of color into the bottom of it and to tell white people, you will get more because an entire group of people exists to get less. She calls white supremacy this nation's oldest pyramid scheme, which I agree with. A lot of white people's anger in the last several years politically had to do with this sense that their needs were not being met. And I think about this a lot. I'm old enough that I remember articles starting 40 years ago in big magazines like Time and Newsweek saying that we should be panicking. And by we, it was clearly aimed at white readers because white people would be in the minority in 50 years. Boy, is that loaded. I, I don't know, and it's been a sing-song ever since. Who allowed this to be printed? What kind of point is there to this? Unless you know, as a culture, you've been so awful to minority people that you fear 
that they will treat you the same way that they've been treated all this time. And what a self-own that is. But it's also a fictional kind of whip up of a base, a marketing thing of a base, because you can control people that have fear. I love the nuance of this book. And just to digress a little bit because of the way that I'll talk about it, I am not a person of color. So in that way, I am privileged. I have other things that might put me at a disadvantage and a lack of privilege. For one thing, I'm female. But I want to talk a little bit about learning. You can only learn a new concept if you can hook it to an old concept. That is why most of us can't pick up a super advanced book on, say, nuclear chemistry and immediately understand it. We would need to have building blocks that let us conceptualize what is in that book. Secondly, I have ADHD and there is a tendency as part of that sort of learning hooking piece for us to have to understand and empathize in a way in which we say, oh, that is like my experience. So sometimes I think about that when I think about it. It's not, not to make this about me, but the systems that keep racial abuse going are the same that keep any other abuse going. And there are tons of different kinds, but the mechanics are all similar. Gaslighting, so telling people what they have experienced is not real. Just like that original commenter said about psychology. These mechanics are, even though there's different kinds of abuse, the mechanics are universal. So she has some basic rules. It is about race if a person of color thinks it's about race. It is about race if it disproportionately or differently affects people of color. It is about race if it fits into a broader pattern of events that disproportionately or differently affect people of color. And I'm going to put a little footnote on that first one. I live in a college town. I live in a multi-college town. There is a version of white savior complex that happens when young people start to learn about injustice, where they jump in and start intervening on behalf of, without consulting, people of color. So I think that first one is a really important thing to keep in mind when you are discussing this, particularly with young people and giving them the chance to learn, giving them the chance to articulate the unfairness that they see, but it is about race if a person of color thinks it is about race. And then again, you can extrapolate that. It's about disability if a person with a disability thinks it's about disability. Whether or not someone is infallible is beside the point. And it can be about race, but not only about race. Just because you have never targeted a black person before doesn't mean this person hasn't been targeted thousands and thousands of times for nothing. And so why should every new interaction be a reset? Race is more than just pain and oppression. It's also culture and history, which I really appreciated. It made me think about how once you have power, it's almost impossible to truly see everything about the groups that are less empowered than you in that domain. You know much, 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 much more about your boss than your boss will ever, ever know about you, no matter how friendly you get. You know much, much, much more about your parents as a child than your parents will ever hope to know about you. You know their moods what affects them. So what is racism? 
as white people that get uncomfortable, we insist on defining racism as like lynching people, violence, or a mean white person. And we often tell individuals not to consider things as racist because it's cruel, like to call grandma racist. She's harmless and it was like her time. Those are very, very dangerous to people of color in real life. There is no other word. It is racist. Grandma's old enough to know better. Grandma has to stop. That's all. No one has to enable grandma. Grandma has to stop. Oluo uses the definition of racism, prejudice against someone because of their race, when those views are reinforced by systems of power. This is so interesting to me. There's a very funny movie called The Boss of Everything. I think about it a lot for many, many reasons. I'm not even going to go into the plot, but there's a moment where some of the people in this office say, well, you know how the Danish are. And then the Danish group says, well, you know how these Icelandic people are. You know what they're like. And I thought that is so funny because I don't. Clearly there's some kind of stereotype and it eludes me completely because I have no idea what they're talking about. So it's almost funny from the side, but to them, it's very serious. And to those characters, it really describes those characters. I think it's important to talk about things like checking your privilege. That's a thing people hate to hear. It's a thing that is trendy to say, but it totally remains. If no one's ever told you your hair is wrong for the workplace when you were just caring for it appropriately, you have privilege. If you're and this is one of those places I'm going to hook it up to the things that, that maybe are easier for my fellow white people to understand. Left-handedness. Almost all of us have somebody in our lives who are left-handed, and almost all of us are right-handed. Left-handed people have to use the controls on the car with their non-dominant hand. All the controls are on the right. In school, the desks are built for the right-handed. There are very few left-handed desks, if there are any at all, and the few left-handed people, there's probably not enough for them. If you've ever sat down to a large family dinner and somebody is left-handed, they may need to sit on a corner that allows them to accommodate the way that is more comfortable for them to eat. And if they're old enough, they may have been shamed and punished for using the sinister hand, the left hand, because it was thought to be wrong. Most of us can understand, oh, wow, by being right-handed, my scissors work, my tools work. Left-handed people often get badly injured on tools. Oh, my tools always work for me. That's never anything I run into. Take that and extrapolate it to being a person of color in the US in this century and you will better understand what privilege means. Does it mean that you went to prep school? No. Does it mean that you had a boat? No. Does it mean that you are one of the 1%? No. It just means that there's not a system that works against you every single moment of the time. It's really easy to get super defensive talking about privilege, and the reason for it is that pyramid system. We are a scarcity-based culture. Again, it's very easy to sell to people who are frightened. 
And one of the ways to get people frightened is to tell them that they are going to lose something, that there's scarcity, that if your neighbor gets something, you lost something. And that's not true. Or it may be completely irrelevant to you. We don't tend to think in those terms. It's easy to not think in those terms. One of the topics she talks about that I think is very helpful is intersectionality, which is that idea, again, that it can be about race and something else. Caring about Black men and justice and, for example, in the case of Bill Cosby or OJ or Chris Brown and caring about Black women and girls. It doesn't have to be either or. One of the real illustrative places of this is that the history of women's suffrage was one where white women and black women began the work together. And then white women who are celebrated for getting women the vote pretty much threw black women under the bus in order to get it, rather than the fact that intersectionality might have been a little more time consuming, but would have been ultimately a better use of the power because intersectionality isn't something to punch down on other marginalized community. There are lots and lots of axes of intersectionality, age, ability and disability, sexual orientation. You might be rich, but be in a bunch of those categories. You may be white, but disabled. An LGBTQ group may prioritize the needs of white gay cisgender men The anti-racism group may prioritize straight men of color, that kind of thing. But the problem is either everybody's got rights or the system is still in place, the scarcity is still in place. Movements tend to drill down to a niche and it's super problematic. Why is there resistance to intersectionality? It feels like it slows things down. Also, people are uncomfortable with their privilege. You don't want to think of yourself as being the man to anyone else. It also decentralizes people who are very used to being the focus of their movements. In other words, it forces you to share. And to a lot of people, particularly people who are used to power, it feels unfair when other people want equal priority. It also forces us to interact with, listen to, and consider people that we don't usually interact with, listen to, and consider. And humans like to find people like them. So if you wish to really do good work in this area, It has to be a conscious choice. So the opposite is how you deal with it. You look out for other people's opinions. You see whether you're missing stuff. You ask, can I shift focus and power away from the most privileged? And am I a safe person that other people can talk to and around? So it's not enough for you to just believe in intersectionality. You have to actually demand it of others. And you have to understand a lot of people don't understand what it is. She has found that it's more effective when it's used as an opportunity to do more instead of just an examination of current failings. And I see a lot of conversations where I've approached it from that sort of, again, the scarcity way. There's a chapter on police violence, which is power and corruption. She has excellent statistics. Just like women don't know whether this guy at a bar is a bad guy or not, which is hashtag not all men, hashtag yes all men, people of color have no way of knowing whether this time they got pulled over was because they were black or not. But the numbers sure indicate that chances are it was. And when you keep in mind that 
the protect and serve on the side of police cars is just a marketing motto because in 1981, Warren versus the state of Columbia held that police do not owe a specific duty to provide police services to specific citizens based on the public duty doctrine. So police can be called in response to a violent crime, arrive, do nothing, leave, and never be responsible for that negligence. And you can look that up on Wikipedia, Warren versus District of Columbia, and it's horrifying. And in Minnesota, Vermont, and Rhode Island, it's a misdemeanor for you if you could have intervened safely or called 911 and you didn't. But the police that you called could just come by or never come by and just saunter away and you'd be the one that was charged. A classic police question is, what are you doing in this neighborhood? Have you ever, as a white person, been asked by a figure of authority that question in any neighborhood whatsoever? The history of the police force, and please, that's a good way to start educating yourself on some of these issues, was to police black citizens across the entire country and in the north to put down labor unrest, which was usually attributed to foreign or immigrant elements. So in other words, marginalized people, a lot of whom would ultimately be absorbed into what's now thought of as white. And there's a belief throughout media of all kinds that has a stereotype that black people are inherently more dangerous, unpredictable, and violent. But in fact, police are much more likely to be domestic abusers, and if caught, much more likely to keep their jobs. Women who have experienced violent crime are often treated very badly by the police. Teachers see black kids as older than they really are, and there's intersectionality in that. Black boys at play are seen as violent. Black kids with disabilities are punished. Doctors think that black women don't feel pain as much because textbooks were written by bigots and are still influencing medicine. And there's an intersectionality there because medicine also has a bad history of making white men the default. So believing women in general don't suffer as much pain or are lying about it or imagining it, plus a belief that black people are somehow hardier leads to real life, terrible maternal outcomes in this country right now. Well, what about the idea of heavy crime in areas that are populated by black people? This is pulled out all the time. Rinstar, who is on TikTok, Instagram, do follow her and contribute to her Venmo, wrote a song that goes, black neighborhoods are over-policed, so of course they have higher rates of crime. White perpetrators are undercharged, so of course they have lower rates of crime. And all of these stupid stats you keep using are operating off a small sample size. So shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And it's brilliant. And honestly, next time someone trots that out, sing the song and give her credit. Alua covers affirmative action. And how is it more fair to let mediocre white people achieve than brilliant people of color? Which is what we're saying when we say that affirmative action is somehow unfair to white people. As long as the numbers are skewed against general representation, we need affirmative action and it works. It's not perfect, but it works. And I remember a genius quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg when someone asked her, well, how many women on the Supreme Court is enough women? She said there were nine men on it for 200 years. So nine women on it for the next 200. And people get very defensive and react very strongly to that, but it's an excellent question. Why not? She has some stuff about why I can't say the N-word. You can. Go for it. Nobody cares. But 
you will not be insulated from consequences of saying it. And that gets into this question after that about consequences. And so she also talks about cultural appropriation. She defines it well. She describes a lot of the confusion surrounding it. Alula says our society prefers a white filter around culture. I mean, look at Elvis, Gwen Stefani, all of these white creators who made a ton of money off of things while their black originators and people of color languished and the appropriators flourished. TikTok has a huge problem with this where black dancers and choreographers supply enormous amounts of the traffic on TikTok and yet the people that get famous are what the algorithm considers pretty, which is white and female. And those people are invited onto things like Jimmy Fallon with dances they only took. That's appropriation. They took it and they did not credit the dancers who choreographed it. That is theft. So what do you do about this? And I've had some discussions about this because music wants to be shared. Certain kinds of culture wants to be shared. And not everybody feels the same way about this as well. So I had a discussion about this with Andrew Del Antonio, who's been on my show before, a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, music professor, and Catherine Odoyo, who's a composer and professor at George Washington University. And it was a great conversation about this because what about sharing? What about making it so that oxygen comes to these creators, money comes to these creators? And especially Professor Odoyo had real clarification on this issue for me, and I appreciate her taking the time to discuss it with me. Credit and pay. Credit and pay. That is the bottom baseline. A collaboration. Being open-minded that you may get blowback from both the people you collaborated with and others. At least you will have done the baseline. Paul Simon came under some issues with this when he did all of his international type music, but he credited his collaborators. He paid them going rates from where he was from, which is uh, something like 300 times what they would have made where they were from. He made himself a conduit for other artists, which was huge for them. And many of them came on record to appreciate that. But he also broke a strike he also was asked to do a little more permission seeking than he did. There is no easy answer to that. But the very baseline is credit and pay, share. She covers people touching her hair. And I have to just say this real quick. I'm not going to go into this deeply. Don't ever do that. Who does that? I know it happens to people and I, I cannot conceive of being so up appallingly self-centered that you think you can grope other people's hair. It's part of their bodies. It's not for you to fiddle with. And that leads to a discussion on microaggressions, which again, get dismissed really easily. But if it happened to you multiple times, every single day, you would be sick of it. People are sick of it. They have the right to be sick of it. Don't do it. And if someone tells you not to do it, don't gaslight them. When you want to know more about this, do the research in your own time. The person that you know of color or that you thought of or that you Googled, they're not your personal guru. She addresses what happens if someone is called racist. We contain multitudes. White society is structurally inherently racist. We can keep working on it. There will always be people who think poorly of you. Do you want to look like a better person or be a better person? And if you want to be a better person, you have to listen. 
You have to stop saying what your intentions were. They don't matter. You have to try to hear the impact of what you did. You do not have all the pieces. No one owes you anything. And you were not, and I think this is super important, especially when I think of parallels with abuse, you were not the first person hurt here. When someone objects to being hurt, an inappropriate reaction is to say, well, me too. If that was the case, then you should have spoken up first. There's an entire section, and I'm so glad she did this, just ways to move away from this as much as possible. Vote local, get in schools, bear witness, speak up in unions, support people of color-owned businesses, boycott banks that prey on people of color and other minorities, donate to orgs fighting oppression, boycott businesses that exploit marginalized people, support creators of color, support increase in the minimum wage, push for police reform, demand college diversity, and vote for diverse government representatives. All of which are things any of us can and should do. And it'll take time, but it's a start. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. You can find past episodes, links, social media, and show notes on the website, working9tothrive.com. Next up, the second half of our conversation with award-winning game designer and historian, Megway Baker. Well, it's interesting. I had a guest on several weeks ago, and we talked, well, we actually talked about two years ago, He's a news journalist, and we were talking about how much of his job is sandcastles. He's a photojournalist, and like, Mm -hmm. or or meals, like, Mm -hmm. kind of some of these things just become part of the flotsam and jetsam of existence, and they were super, super important and and unbelievably meaningful at a time. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's like that's a whole nother that's a whole nother conversation about like how we capture the story. And it's one of the things that's a really like current conversation in museums about now that we live in a digital age, what will we have? Right. I think now photos all the time. Yeah. Photos, private, like letters and journals, they are like gone currently like when was the last time you wrote not like a birthday card or like something like that but like just a chatty letter right physical chatty letter to a friend and mailed it right right I was I was never a good letter writing was one of those things I I came of age at the point where that was tipping over and I yeah I was profoundly relieved (laughs) (laughs) when when email came in and I could actually contact people again because I had lost them all for a decade while I didn't write (laughs) yeah I I've never been a a good letter writer but I will email you back by the end of the day (laughs) but as a you know, in, in terms of museum work, I am now still happily accessioning in collections of letters from the 1880s, you know, happy, like, cool, look at this wonderful exchange between a father and son in the 1880s. And that's what I did yesterday anyway. And um, trying to think of, uh, you know, in terms of the way we capture stories and how now there's going to be this huge gap starting in sort of 1990 right and going forward of like 
did people just not keep journals? Did they just not write to each other? You know, digital cameras come out and suddenly there are no photographs left because we like something stored in a digital fashion lasts forever or for 10 years, whichever comes first. Right. That's, that's the saying, right? Like if we, if it's not, if it's not, you know, if you really want something to last, write it down with a good dark pencil on good rag paper (laughs) and it will last forever. But like so much of this, like trying to figure out, trying to capture things. The photo thing, I actually think about that about twice a year. I think what I should do is some summer just print all my kids a retrospective of like the best photos we've got in a book and be like, bam, there's your childhood. From here on, it's up to you. (laughs) This is you. Yeah. And like, it's a really, that's a great thing to do. And it's, it's so hard because we're, we're now in a place where we take so many. Yeah. All the time that how do you, how do you curate down to here are the hundred photos that capture your childhood how do you count how do you curate down to here are the hundred photos that capture this year right and now we're like we're coming toward the end of inshallah we're coming toward the end of a incredibly historic year that is unprecedented in our lifetime of anybody alive right and how do we document that how do we how do we track that how do we how do we yeah. How do we do that? It's, and how much of that is going to be missing completely in the record? So like two of the museums I'm working with are actively right now gathering in COVID stories of like, what have you done under COVID? Did you lose anyone? Did you, what was it like getting tested? Can someone send us a mask, you know, sort of thing because of having the awareness that we're living in historic time. Well, and it's so interesting because there's this weird trade-off. Like, even as you're talking about the physical aspects of them, when you were talking about, you know, bringing into the collection these letters, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. and you'll digitize them, and then I can see them, and so can oh, somebody yeah. in Israel, which couldn't yep. happen before. Like, their existence was physical and local and mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. really interesting with all because when I even when I think about the you know potential photo project and you know how much money that would take I also think you know how great it is unlike my family of origin my sister has all those books they live at her right. house that's where they are and if I want to see them I have to go there whereas mm-hmm. how cool the digital version is because everyone has a password and everyone's shared on Google Drive and you yeah. can go see all the photos. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Like there's yeah. there the trade-offs are real. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that as we consider wherever you are in your life when you start to think about like what do I want to outlast me? You know, that's one of the things. And as soon as you are in a position where you have dealt with the effects of a house, which I when my grandparents passed away 15 years ago and suddenly here I was emptying out their house and that was part of the deaccessions policy of thinking about like what few things can I hold that carries their legacy forward and what do I really not need and then reviewing it with you know the other relevant parties you know my sister and cousin and on and you know your whole this this is such a nice 
this is such a nice circle because your whole description early on about family lore, Mm -hmm. I have a flag and my kids have occasionally described it as my father's military flag. My father was a World War II vet. And I Uh had to say it is not. It is the flag that we hung from the porch. When I was a kid, yeah, it's it just yeah. his military flag was buried with him, and he and it wasn't yes. a real one anyway. They only bought it's a that flag. for the funeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He did not possess a flag as a result of his position Service. as a soldier. Yeah, they didn't, right. They, that didn't exist. He had one other yeah. coffin. It was buried with him. And when we were sort of getting rid of stuff, I saw this flag and I thought, oh, it's kind of cool. This is the one we had and I associate it with him and he bought it like sometime in the 50s and, you know, it's cotton, which is kind of cool. And, you know, he was a Boy Scout leader and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, oh, the flag that we had. But it is really funny to be like, you guys, no, 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 it's not that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's so important. Like, that's the sort of thing, like how to like, if that matters that's the sort of thing that you write down on a little tag of paper yeah. and you tie it to that flag through the grommet it's probably a valley forge like made by the valley forge flag company oh wow <laughs> if it's you know ni- circa 1950 cotton flag yeah probably made by valley forge probably has a little label on it oh, next to one so of the brass gom- grommets i says, find it yeah. <laughs> but it is funny that my kids and and i remember my oldest daughter in particular she she was like but I thought it was special. And I was like, well, I mean, it's funny. It is special. It is. But I see what her point is. Like, she thought right. it must be sort of, you know, more generally, like, important. Like, it, that its mm-hmm. importance was more overt than just, oh, that's mm-hmm. what we used to put up on the... And then and then after the 4th of July, yeah. we folded it up and stuck it in the garage. Put <laughs> it down. Well, that talk, that speaks directly to a thing that I think is really interesting about memory and storytelling and creativity and like value like how like what has value what do we remember and why yeah you know because to you it is special you hung it on the it was your thing you know the things i brought home from my grandparents house some of them are like parts of their dining room set which my father was like why do you want those they bought those in the 50s and i'm like uh, yes, and they were in Grandma and Grandpa's house my entire childhood. Right. I want them, you know. So it's that that thing of recognizing that different parts of the story mean things to different people. Yeah, and that's part of why we're not ever going to get all of history is because we're going to get the different parts that meant things to different people yeah. that they that, that got passed down. Well, but like one of the things about your flag, though, like I people ask sometimes, like what do I write down? Like, where do I start? Cause it's overwhelming. Mm. And I say, if I were to come to your house and look around your room, like a room, look around the living room. And there's something that you would want to tell me about. That's what you write down about like that. thing, because that's what you care enough that you will tell a guest who comes to your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's a ton of stuff in all of our houses that we've really frankly don't care about we may we may think we care care about them they may be cool we may have bought them we may have inherited them they may have great you know our kid may have done them in kindergarten whatever but if it like if someone comes to your house and you care enough to say here is the story behind this thing and it doesn't matter how big or small the thing is or how old the thing is if that that is a thing that you care about 
And that's a, a story you need to record so that it's, it has a possibility of continuing. It's so funny because the time that I've done that, very memorably did that, I built a house when my kids were really young and I I was looking for flooring. I couldn't find any flooring. It's an expensive thing. It's hard yeah. to find. Normally when it's like you sort of figure buildings get taken apart all the time, but it's usually trashed. And if somebody picks it up and cleans it up, then it's antique. Anyway, it's very hard to find it. And I was walking through my parents' garage and I looked up and I saw the distinctive pattern of flooring. It looks different underneath and it was maple flooring. And I found my father and I said, why is there stacks of flooring up there? And he had removed it from the Vernon Street School when it was redone with linoleum in like 1962 or something and he had kept it wow. in his garage attic yeah and he had used it on a couple small projects and in the end I made a deal with him and I took it all out but that's it's funny that's the one memorable time I've ever I went and bought a massive sharpie and I wrote the story <laughs> of what this floorboard is from on the underlayment and then I, awesome. mailed the, <laughs> I mailed it so someday if someone takes off that flooring they'll be like oh that's what this is <laughs> that's really cool and also extremely common yeah yeah I have heard of people opening up to do house you know, repairs yeah. and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some actual tin in here with all the stuff. Yeah. It's so cool. Like there's a lot of stuff that gets accidentally closed up in walls of, and, and like old newspaper and things like that. And, but I mean, that's so, so vibrant. Like that is the story of the floor of that house. Yeah. It felt like a necessary thing when I did it. I was like, well, I've got to take an hour and do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, that's I'll so anyone cool. know. <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, you know, you need to write it down again yes. so that somebody can know it. Yeah. It's just there. There's, ah, you know, it's so cool. People are so endlessly fascinating and they're so full of stories. Like they can't stop every, they just create them Well, because it, it's life happening to them. Yeah. And it's funny. I was just thinking, you know, I did, I did really read and got a lot out of that lies. My teacher told me book, but one of the things that I have sometimes thought about, and since you work at a lot of these museums, I think mm -hmm. you'll probably know the exhibit I'm talking about. The Pecumtuck. Pecumtuck. Yep. Yeah. I'm saying it right. Museum in Deerfield, Massachusetts. I always think it's yep. so funny. It's the world's tiniest town, but there's two major historical societies. But, um, but they have, they have the sort of, narrative of the Deerfield Massacre, which yep. I, I'm, I'm a local kid. I grew up with that. We went there for field trips. And the language on some of that stuff was very much of its time, you know, and, and very sure. much the language of the victors, right? I, I think the yep. phrase the phrase that always comes to me is the one that's like hewn down by the ruthless savage or something like that. Sure. So several years ago, they really started listening to native stories and mm -hmm. the other sides, French stories, the other sides of all of this. And then they took those original, they had all these plaques that described what happened to each person in this very incendiary language and they made an identical looking fabric overlay that yeah. had a yeah. second and third and fourth story on it so you could and it's so good it is so good and it's funny yes. because on the one hand I wish all those stories had been available to me at the beginning on the other hand I kind of enjoy the contrast of having only been told one story 
and going back and hearing that there's all this other yeah. backstory yeah. that I, you know, I, on the one hand, I don't, I don't want to teach limited or, or learn limited history. On the other hand, it's kind of, it was kind of cool to have sort of a revisit and be like, oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the key piece is like to teach history, recognize and like being to, to lead with the limitations, mm. say, here is what we know so far. Yeah. And we acknowledge that there are voices we do not have. And that's huge, you know, if to, to say, this is the piece we have, and yeah. we are looking for the stories of the indigenous people, the enslaved people, the women, the poor people, the queer people, we are looking for them, right? you know, to acknowledge that they are there always everywhere. And that we're, that we don't have all the pieces yet. Yeah. And then to like work with, to actively seek out ways to help elevate those voices and and hear those voices historically and currently you know the battlefield archaeology research project research board i can never quite get the acronym over in turner's falls is one of those that i've been loosely associated with for a while as they go through the process of recognizing the massacre there as a as a national battlefield site I didn't know there was a massacre there. Oh my God. Okay. I know we're over time, but. No, no, no. History. No, I, I can get it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, oh God, I could do a whole thing on this. <laughs> the, the way that the Connecticut River loops around Turner's Falls, the Great Falls in Deerfield, because of the pressures on the indigenous people during the colonial colonizing era, pre pre-revolutionary war so we're talking about like 1630 or thereabouts in which the raid on Deerfield the 1704 raid on Deerfield is part of that mm. but it, it's only a piece of King Philip's war and you know other broader issues going on in the Connecticut River Valley and Massachusetts at large and Turner's Falls Great Falls prior was a ancient 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 I mean we have to uh what was it 20,000 years documented wow. in terms of circling and like habitual occupation or something like that like ridiculously long gathering site and and like a site of peace treaty space between indigenous peoples of the Pekantuk and the Nipmuc and the Abenaki and the Wampanoag although they were you know they're more eastern but like all the the local tribes that would come there for the salmon run is this the five tribes is that what that yep five nations uh, wait no five nations the, the, like the iroquois nations i might be that's a different it up. okay yeah that's a different thing but like the local local western massachusetts connecticut river valley people would come to the falls there because that when the when the shad were running not salmon, I said salmon earlier, but it's not, it's shad. When the shad were running, it'd be like huge, big, everybody come and get all the stuff you need. Then you have like encroaching colonialists who through various things, you know, conflicts and tax and so on, you wind up having a massive refugee camp oh. actually there. Are you familiar with Turner's Falls at I all? I am very, I've lived there. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're at Unity Park and you're looking out across the, the water above the falls. I was there yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to imagine all of that water kind of gone 
except for a narrow channel because the water came at a really sharp angle out of Barton's Cove, rushing over toward the Unity Park Bank and left this big flat space over on the gill side. Okay. And all of that other, like up the, like the sort of, if you took all the buildings away, you'd get this kind of sloping landscape up on the gill side of the river that was all, all refugee camp. Whoa. And, yeah so then there's a whole cycle of stuff which i won't get into now but please go do look for it because it's great history and through like the 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 indigenous people looking for to have their treaties honored and trying to negotiate with the the colonial government in Albany and the colonial government in Hartford and the colonial government in Boston, which are, you know, it's a French and a Dutch and a English government different. What was, what was the first one? Boston, Hartford and where? Hartford and Albany. Albany, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they work out some things with Albany and they work out some things with Hartford, but Boston decides that they're having none of that because of what's going on in Deerfield. And they send uh, regiments and basically slaughter people. Just like, you know, they, it was a early morning attack and they mostly was the women and children and elders who were down in the village area and the young men were up on the ridges. The younger men were up on the ridges. So Turner, Captain William Turner and his men come in and Turner had been gotten out of jail he was in prison for, for being a lousy military person. And they got him out of jail to have him come and lead this attack. And they basically massacre the people in the encampment and then people on the surrounding hills. The young, the warrior folks uh, ride down and be like, the hell? And Turner winds up dying, uh, being shot down wow. at what is now the Greenfield swimming pool area. Wow. But one of the pieces that's really interesting and important in this is that one part was about weaponry and that the indigenous people camping there had some blacksmithing capacity and were, were working on weapons. And because it is part of a larger picture of trying to defend themselves against colonialism. Okay. And it just, there's so much neat complexity there. But one of the things that comes out of this attack is this, it's not only an attack on the women and children and elders and, you know, killing 400 people. It's also an attempt to throw these little forges into the river and dismantle and, you know, break their ability to repair their weapons and and stuff like that. So it's just really fascinating. And like, this is the sort of, Yeah. yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. But like there are people way more qualified to tell the story way better than me. But it's one of the things that, you know, like you said about Memorial Hall and the Pecumptic PVMA, Pecumptic Valley Memorial, Memorial Association. Association. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at how those stories get told and retold and where where they're the who is portrayed as the victor or as the, the person in the right. And what where the real story is when the real story is so much more complex and nuanced, but also really darn simple. There were invading colonial forces. Yeah, yeah. So wow, this went yeah. all sorts of interesting ways, Meg. And I and I'd love to get together again and chat with you and go further into 
other various things. This just got very yeah. locally, very I'm, interesting and very deep. And I love it. I'm really intrigued to see how you're going to manage to edit this. <laughs> this is a lot. <laughs> and like, we wound up talking, <laughs> we wound up talking mostly about history. And like, so I'm currently the collections assistant at the Hatfield Historical Museum. Oh. And I'm chair of the curatorial committee in the Historical Society at Greenfield. And I work as a museum skills consultant person yeah, up and down the Pioneer Valley for small museums, small local history museums. Oh, cool. It's really fun. Yeah. And then, you're a, and then you're a game designer. We hardly talked about that at all. Yeah, we like barely touched on that. So in <laughs> <No>. game design, <laughs> in game design, I co-wrote Apocalypse World. Vincent and I wrote, wrote Apocalypse World 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, which started the Powered by the Apocalypse design movement. And there are now, I'm, I'm dude, I've lost track. I know there's at least 300 published games wow. that, that use the, that we laid down of like, here are some tools that will help you write the stories you want, write the games you want to write, to bring forth the stories you want to bring forth, specifically looking at non underrepresented voices. Like if you're a queer kid and you have an idea for a game design, please pick up our games. Here's some tools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go do your thing. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Almost, it's almost a historian's understructure. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> it is a historian's understructure of understanding that this, that this involves consent and agency and like figure it out and there's more to figure out and put your own spin on it. Well, well, not yeah. to not to run back to Deerfield and Pecumtuck, but one of those stories and those flaps that I loved so much was whereas I had heard that, you know, this poor, this victim was kidnapped and stuff. One of the stories is the journals of one of these people that was abducted. They came back and they said, oh, I, yeah. I knew this was going to happen. I lived in this place, but they said they treated me well. And not only that, we made really good friends. And so they yeah. used to have a whole group of Mohawk families stop and stay at their barn in yeah. Deerfield on their way yeah. out to Albany for their annual conventions out there. And I said, and I was like, okay, that's, that's that talk about agency. The one where you say, eh, I mean, I knew what I was in for and they were decent. And so they've always been able to come and use my barns. <laughs> Part of the interesting piece there that we get taught in history is like, oh, yeah, but there were, you know, Indians had, you know, they say Indians and, you know, sure. Indians had slaves too, but, or Indians kidnapped people too, or whatever, without understanding the way that that happened was yeah. incredibly different than the way that the English were doing that to the Highland Scots, for example. Right. Yeah, yeah. At the, you know, at the same, in, during the colonial, we think of it as like the colonial era, you know, 1700s in America. But during the same time, you're having England doing horrific things. Oh, yeah. To yeah. And so it's especially English colonials who come over, and that's predominantly who's coming over through Boston over to Western Mass is English colonists, right. not the Dutch colonists coming up from New York. If you look at a pre, like pre-Revolutionary War map of the Connecticut River Valley that's through the Dutch, you will see the indigenous names used as trading points up the Connecticut River because- Oh, interesting. The Dutch are here to come on up, let's hang out. <laughs> 
I've got some stuff for your, I've got, you know, some knives and some beer and some guns or whatever. You've got furs. Let's have a party. I'll see you next year. Yeah. They're traitors. They're not. Oh, the French too. Yeah. Same with the French coming down from, you know, from Quebec. Yeah. Whereas the English are fleeing English horrors. Yeah. Right. They're being driven out because England is committing atrocities. Well, yeah, and, so and, when- and forcibly sent. I mean, we had the same kind of um, criminals just sent here before yep. we shut it off and they started sending them to Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we never yeah. talk about that. We don't have that well, same. And we also Australia don't talk about pride in it. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't talk about the fact that when English colonists landed in Massachusetts, they were met by indigenous people who spoke English and asked if they brought beer. I love that story so much. I learned that at at Plymouth, at the yeah. Plymouth Plantation. Plymouth Plantation. Yeah. But, you know, for all we get taught all across the country about, like, the Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth Rock, and we get taught that as, like, a founding mythology when right. there's been, been contact for 200 years prior. Yeah. Yeah, the you Vikings. Know? Couple yeah, of Irish, like the Spanish, the French. <laughs> yeah. And we're all, like... We've been here. What? You know? (laughs) But it's back to that thing of like, what is the mythology that, you know, what gets, what gets taught? Anyway. This has been so much fun, Meg. This is great. So thank you so much for being on here today with me, Meg. I really appreciate it. This was a great discussion. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Obviously, we could talk for a lot more. I'd love to do this again. I'd like to thank Megway Baker for coming on the show today. If you want to learn more about her games, listen to the first half of this conversation in past episodes, or to contact us, go to working9to thrive.com, and that's with the number nine.